Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And can you tell that I've kind of slipped into a relaxed summer schedule? Each week lately, uh, I've been planning on getting back to posting a new podcast on Monday, but it seems like I don't get up to speed until the middle of the week, which is a bit strange because being retired with no fixed schedule to maintain means, uh, well, that every day, even the weekends, uh, well, they're all more or less the same. I'm actually uh, looking forward to when my two youngest granddaughters go back to school and uh, I get to pick them up once in a while. At least I uh, keep up with what day it is then. Ah, the trials and tribulations of us old guys. <laughs> guys who have more free time on our hands than we used to. So uh, as you listen to this podcast while you're commuting to or from work, or even at work for that matter, well, uh, think about how much better off you are than us retired people. <laughs> but uh, for what it's worth, I wouldn't trade my uh, slow-moving leisure for any kind of job. I most definitely have it better than almost anybody else in the world today. So uh, complaining, however, is what us humans do, and uh, hopefully you can see my smile right now. But two people who haven't taken the summer off, but who instead have made donations to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon, are Roger O. and Emily R. And I'll do my best to honor your wonderful contributions by getting back into a Monday podcast groove again very soon. In any event, I thank you very much for your support. Now, I know that a lot of our fellow saloners attended the Glastonbury Festival, and in the early days of these podcasts, when the Dope Fiend was doing the Dope Cast, the recordings of uh, he and his friends that he made during the festival were always one of my favorites. Sadly, uh, the Dope Cast is no longer. And while I'm sure that there are a lot of podcasts from, in, and around the Glastonbury Festival, I no longer feel that uh, I have the same personal connection that I did when the Dope Fiend was still podcasting. However, uh, today I'm pleased to let you know that the salon once again has a friend who attended the festival this year. He is fellow saloner Paul Harley. And while attending the festival this year, he was able to capture a couple of talks that he thought we fellow saloners would find interesting. And uh, today I'm going to play one of them for you. Here is uh, an announcement from the Glastonbury program this year. And I quote... The Common is incredibly honored to invite Graham Hancock and Professor David Nutt to speak in the temple on Saturday afternoon from 1400. They will cover the topic of, and answer your questions related to, Do Psychedelics Matter? Although demonized and attracting severe criminal penalties for users during the half-century of the war on drugs, psychedelics are now undergoing a renaissance both in terms of scientific research and in people's personal and spiritual worlds. It is once again a time of oriented explorations of the mystery of consciousness. So uh, today I'm going to play David Nutt's talk. I think that uh, most of our fellow saloners already know uh, about all that Professor Nutt has done to help bring a sensible end to the war on drugs particularly in the UK, where he was the chairman of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And I'm told that uh, this position is similar to what the U.S. calls his drug czar. 
In this position, however, Professor Nutt frequently clashed with uh, other government officials in, well, he thought that, among other things, that cannabis is a safe medicine and that horse riding is even more dangerous than taking ecstasy. (laughs) Not surprisingly, his outspoken honesty caused him to lose his government position. Today, Professor Nutt teaches and conducts research at Imperial College London. As our longtime saloners know, both the uh, dope fiend and I began talking about Professor Nutt's work even before he was forced to leave his government position. I remember at least one of his talks that uh, the dope fiend attended, recorded in podcast. So during the years that the dope cast was still being produced, I guess there probably have been close to a million young people who learned about Professor Nutt's work. And I suspect he really doesn't realize what a big icon he is in the worldwide psychedelic community. So when Paul sent me this recording last week, I knew right away that I'd be podcasting it right after the Jonathan Ott talk that I was working on at the time. Now, if you listened to Jonathan's talk last week, you know that it was given in 1996. And one of the things that he mentioned was the possibility that Western thought, Western civilization itself was grounded in the psychedelic experience. Now, uh, let's flash forward 20 years to the Glastonbury Festival. And guess what? Without any planning on my part whatsoever, we're going to hear Professor Nutt say something very similar. So, uh, do you think that maybe there's something to this idea after all? Now, uh, let's listen to what Professor David Nutt had to say to a packed room at the 2016 Glastonbury Festival which came to an end, uh, well, a little over a week ago, I guess. And, uh, yes, I've done my best to clean up the audio, and uh, hopefully you'll allow for the difficulties often involved in recording these talks at festivals. So, so I'll kick off, and uh, I'll tell you about, about me and what we're doing, and then we'll, we'll take questions. So, so the first thing to say is I'm a psychiatrist, and as I like to tell people, the name like nut. There are not many jobs in medicine that are fitting. Um, uh, the men amongst you will realise that there is another one, but uh, we tend not to go there. Um, and I've always been interested in the brain. And uh, it seemed to me that, like most of you, the brain is uh, something that you cherish and you uh, would probably like to understand more, but you'd also like to optimise. You'd like to, to know how best to make your brain do the things that can be useful for you. And, and one of the most uh, interesting and profound insights in, 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 I had in, uh, in my life was uh, when I was about 15. And my father, who was a wise man, uh, um, a civil servant, and not an academic, but uh, a product of the war, so he, he didn't go to university, but he was extremely clever. And um, he was reading a book one day, and I came home from I think, Scouts or something, and he said, you should read this. And this was a description by a man called Albert Hoffman, who... Presumably you've all heard of Albert Hoffman. And it was Hoffman's description of how he accidentally pipetted a small dose of a substance called LSD into his mouth when he was working on it as a medicinal chemist. And, uh, and that was a very important message because, of course, in those days, still at school, we were doing mouth pipetting like he did. And that's all gone now, so we won't have any accidents like that in future. However, Hoffman's accident was quite interesting because he was expecting, I think, nothing, but experienced a very profound alteration in consciousness 
Um, his description that was really intriguing to me was not the fact that the world seemed different or that uh, music was louder or more melodic or more important, but it was his description of how it, the cycle home, his normal 30-minute cycle home, seemed to take seven hours. And I remember thinking at that time, well, that is intriguing, isn't it? So, if obviously the brain works out what time is, and if a drug like LSD can change the way the brain perceives time, it's got to be a really important tool for studying brain mechanisms. If you want to understand timekeeping, then you know you probably should give people LSD and see how well they register time. And, um, and so those of you who go to work late regularly, you may just have some differences in those receptors, etc., that LSD work on. And, and I was so intrigued by the... Uh, that insight that uh, I went back to school and I started talking to my teachers and uh, and they said we don't talk about that here. Oh, I said okay, why is that? And they said well because it's illegal now. So I started asking, well, why is LSD illegal when it's such an interesting tool to study the brain? And of course they couldn't give me an answer, and, and um, nor can anyone else. Anyone got the answer? Yeah, okay. There was no reason why LSD is illegal other than the fact that. Um, the American government uh, decreed it should be illegal, and that rather irritated me because I've never been, I've never been one to believe that the politicians really had any better insights into life than we have. And in fact, in my 20 years of working with them, I know now I was right. And they, they have a lot less insights. Um, so then, a few months later, we had a show and tell at. Uh, at the school I was at, Bristol Grammar School. Any Bristol Grammar School people here? No, they're still studying for their A-levels, I know, yeah. Um, they, uh, and, uh, so we had a chemistry lab to open, and I went along, and I'd made a molecular model of LSD, which I put up. This is the, what, this is the, because we're talking now about 1967, and with the, the whole of the Haight-Ashbury, um, don't look so confused, if Haight, her, her, Someone needs to tell them what hate has, hate has. Yeah, San Francisco, the summer of love in 1967. Hate Ashbury was the place where American young Americans went to to listen to the Grateful Dead and to uh, to take LSD because they didn't want to fight this war in Vietnam. So the whole the whole nature of music and art and and to some extent politics was changing at that time. And uh, anyway, I showed my my molecule and. Everyone else was showing things like benzene or ethanol. And, uh, and I, thought, I thought a little more about it then. Yeah. But then a few years later, when I became a psychiatrist, I started working with people who were psychotic. And of course, there's been a theory for a long time that psychosis could be caused by uh, something in the brain that is rather like LSD, because one of the experiences of psychedelic drugs like LSD is to make your brain work rather differently, to give you uh, altered perceptions of, of, of vision or hearing or thinking. And uh, there's been a long-standing theory that LSD can actually mimic psychosis. And, and that got me interested in the whole question of, uh, of can we use drugs to explore not only things like the nature of timekeeping, but also to make, maybe model psychosis so we can perhaps look for novel treatments. because. We have treatments for psychosis, but um, 
the reality is there is only one kind of treatment, although there are many different drugs, they all work in the same way. And they're not wonderfully good. They are good for some people, but they don't help everyone. And they also have a lot of side effects. And in fact, something we are doing now, just as an aside, is we are doing a study using psilocybin, magic mushroom juice, to produce effects in the brain which are sort of similar to psychosis, to look for new kinds of approaches to drugs that might help people. The reality is, though, that um, uh, when we look at the nature of uh, psychedelic experiences in the brain, we know now that drugs like LSD and the precursors, drugs like psilocybin, and going back even further uh, to drugs like um, ayahuasca, we know that they all work on a serotonin receptor in the brain. And uh, there was a lot of hope back in the 70s that if LSD was causing psychosis, if we could block the receptor it worked at, then we could potentially have a new treatment. Unfortunately, that failed. That approach failed. It hasn't completely died because, interestingly, just a few months ago, a, a new treatment for a kind of psychosis which you see in people with Parkinson's disease has been, has been um, licensed in the USA based on blocking those receptors, those 5-HC receptors that NSD works on. So, so it's not been a fruitless exercise, but it certainly hasn't transformed the, the way in which we think about psychosis. But of course, over the last let's, 20 years or so, the whole role of things like uh, of receptors, like serotonin receptors in other disorders became much, much more understood, particularly in disorders like depression, anxiety, and stress. And that's where this field does really get quite interesting now, because uh, when you look at the action of, of psychedelic drugs to stimulate these receptors, you see that they may, in, in, in some ways, replicate or even su surpass the impact of more traditional drugs like antidepressants on these receptors. And that's actually one area where our research is going at present. Because some of you may know that we uh, reported just a few months ago, and it's a freely available online if you get search nut and psilocybin, you'll find a paper in Lancet Psychiatry just a few months ago, where we did for the first time an experiment where we took people who had difficult to treat depression. Their depression had failed to respond to two conventional treatments, usually two different sorts of antidepressants, but in fact all but one of them had had psychotherapy as well. And then we gave them a single psychedelic experience with psilocybin. The dose was uh, 25 milligrams, a fairly big dose. Uh, they had quite a profound uh, experience, lasting three to four hours. And most of them, not everyone, but most of them felt quite a lot better. And, uh, and some of them have stayed well. Some of them have stayed well now. We've done a six-month follow-up, and some of them have stayed well for nearly six months. And that's really the first uh, controlled trial of these drugs, uh, or any of these kind of drugs for the treatment of, uh, of depression. But we're not the first people to think of that, in fact. Um, the main point of my talk is I'm going to get onto now, which is that we have resurrected this kind of research, which was being done quite extensively back in the 1950s and 60s. And we've done it um, because, as I've already shown you, there's, it makes sense to do it. And it is rather 
well, it's distressing, and actually, I think it's actually insulting, and it's outrageous, really, that, that science and medicine and you people haven't been allowed to, to access this kind of approach simply because of the politics that surrounds uh, psychedelics. So that's what I want to talk about for really the rest of my talk, but we can take questions on the, on the medicine later. So let's go back in history. You could argue that we, modern Western society, is the only society in the history of humanity that has not used mind-altering drugs and encouraged the use of mind-altering drugs. And, and that's rather humbling, I think. So you look, you can you can see cultures going, you know, native cultures and both the Americas. The word shaman, shaman is a Siberian word for uh, wise people who would use uh, another kind of mushroom than psilocybin, the Amanita muscaris mushroom in Siberia to produce changes in mood and mental state. Uh, clearly, Hindu religion, any religion has got six-armed gods. They were using something that was called Soma, and it was probably um, a combination of... Uh, of psilocybin and ephedra, the stimulant ephedra. So cultures uh, forever have used it. And perhaps the most important one, of course, are the ancient Greeks. Uh, if I had a slide, I'd show you this wonderful slide uh, of uh, a Greek vase, which dates back to something like 1500 years BC. And the ancient Greeks were very well aware of the therapeutic as well as recreational value of many drugs they really popularized and developed the, the way of cultivating and preserving wine. But they knew, like most of you do, that wine is not enough. <laughs> and every year, when towards the end of the summer, when the Jews started getting a bit heavier, the, interestingly, a bit like you, the Athenian intellectuals and intelligentsia, would, instead of coming to Glastonbury, they would go north. It was a lot drier there, interestingly, so it was called the Elysian Fields. So the Champs-Élysées in Paris is named after the Elysian Fields, which are north of Athens. And the Greek intelligentsia went north from Athens to the Elysian Fields, because in those fields, they were growing, or growing on the rye and the barley that they were cultivating there was a fungus called ergot. And they knew that if they ate the ergot, they would get high. So they would go with their, the gift of Dionysius, the god Dionysius, who was the god of alcohol. They'd take their urns of wine and they would go and they would drink wine and they'd chew on the ergot fungus and they would have a wonderful experience. So wonderful that they recreated it on their, the images on their pottery, which is how we know about it today. And the reason they did that was actually in many ways the same reason as you come here. They wanted to escape from the city. They wanted to spend time in the country. But they also wanted to have a different way of thinking. They wanted to change their thought processes so they could go back and carry on doing the same stuff they did before, but perhaps better. They kind of wanted to cleanse their mind. They wanted to, to make themselves better, improved, different. And you think, well, that sounds like quite a good idea, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, what should we do today, dear? Well, let's go up to the Elysian Fields and, uh, 
have a couple of days, you know, drinking and taking psychedelics, and then what? Well, we'll come back, and then we'll build democracy. You know, that would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? And and, uh, and they did, and they and they wrote. Of course, they developed concepts which still underpin our society today. The you know, concepts of literature and art, etc. So we know that these drugs, if used appropriately in a socially acceptable way, can have huge benefits to society. In fact, you know, you could argue, I'm not sure I'd go this far, but you could argue that Western society is built out of that kind of experience that the Greeks may well have gotten from, from taking psychedelics. So where did it all go wrong? Well, it, 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 that's a really quite difficult question to answer. Well, I suppose we have to blame the Romans, because they took over Greece and they... They were rather more militaristic and um, a bit more sort of rudimentary in terms of their perspectives on life, and they liked fighting rather than thinking. And to some extent, the the subsequent 2,000 years have been uh, uh, limited in terms of people's access to these drugs and to the knowledge of these drugs, and we tended to rely on alcohol. And of course, alcohol is is a great drug. You know, we you I guess we will use it. Yes. Yes, a few of you haven't here. Anyway, maybe sometimes I give this talk, and there are some people who've never used alcohol, but there are relatively few. Alcohol is, is pervasive in our society. It has been for a very long time. And one of the problems with alcohol, one of the reasons alcohol is so pervasive, is that it figures so strongly in the Bible. In fact, as hopefully you will know, I mean, I'll give you an example. The reason alcohol was so powerful in, in ancient times was was rather. Uh, it's rather shown by what's in the floor in front of us. In those days, if you drank water like this, you'd probably die. Whereas the wine was one way of keeping water in a way, a manner which was actually safe because the alcohol killed the bugs in it. So alcohol has been life-saving in terms of providing a drinking, uh, drinking fluid. But of course, all cars also become part of, our, part of the symbolism of our religion. So Christian religion has used alcohol in it. You know, the wedding at Cana, what did Jesus do? Well, he made the wedding go well because he turned water into wine. Because wine, you know, the tradition of uh, Jewish weddings at the time was to, to have wine to celebrate. And the church then, of course, uh, took that. It took that accepted uh, drug and it turned it into part of the religious ceremonies. So, you know, I mean, if you take communion, you, in both, well, you know, all. Um, certainly Catholic and, and Anglican communions, you drink wine. And whether you believe that's the body, the blood of Christ or it's a symbolic, you know, it's a matter. the fact is the church has had a hegemony on drugs for the last uh, 2,000 years. And the church has evolved into the drinks industry, which started with the church and then became a, a separate industry. And the drinks industry is extremely keen to keep, keep its monopoly over drugs. And it's fought uh, battles over the last 150 years to make sure that no other drug really got on the market. When accessible versions of drugs like opium and cannabis and cocaine became available to the public, systematically the drinks industry has created opposition to them, created fear about them, and eventually got them banned. So, for, so as I said, the reason we as a of a society that doesn't use mind-altering drugs is largely because of the, the pressure that the drinks industry put on politicians 
to maintain their stranglehold on, uh, on the control of these substances. And that's extremely, well, it, that's immoral, personally, I think. I don't, I don't see it, it, it can be any justification for limiting people's access to substances that change their mind, particularly not if you do it on the pretext of harm. And this, of course, is where the whole story gets extremely murky. Uh, most of the justification for keeping drugs illegal is because supposedly they're harmful. But as you know, and hopefully some of you have read some of my work over the years, most of the so-called illegal drugs are less harmful than alcohol. And, and that's therefore what, you know, that is so scientifically that the, the justification for that illegality is wrong. And of course, it was my protesting the government's continued uh, resistance or intransigence to uh, having a rational drug policy that eventually got me sacked as their advisor in 2009. Well, there's an interesting sort of. million people who've got criminal records for cannabis possession, they 
they don't have work jobs, and they really struggle to get to get work, and they are extremely disadvantaged. But beyond that, we've created uh, another underclass of people who've got medical problems for which they cannot get access to treatments. And almost all the so-called illegal drugs that the newspapers know the names of or can spell, cannabis, MDMA, LSD, I was going to say psilocybin, but I don't think they can spell that. But it's, so those drugs that are illegal today all have huge medical potential. And to deny access of patients to their therapeutic possibilities is I just is, is, even if these drugs were dangerous, it would be outrageous to deny patients who should be allowed to make their own minds up about the relative risk benefit. But when these drugs are dangerous, when you have a drug like cannabis, which is safer than alcohol, to deny it to patients, to break down the doors of people with multiple sclerosis, to just to find that they've got some cannabis and to prosecute them, this happens on a regular basis. To my mind, it's, well, it's ridiculous. It's actually, as a taxpayer, it's insulting. Why should my money go to giving police overtime so they can smash people's doors down at six in the morning? I mean, I don't want my tax money spent on that. And why should these people who have got no other recourse other than to a so-called illegal drug, why should they be subject to the kind of harassment? What, what, is, what kind of society does that? And why do they do it? And of course, as I've said, I've told you why they do it. They do it because politically uh, it's powerful. The people that take drugs tend not to vote, so it doesn't matter if you lose their votes. There's a powerful lobby against them through the drinks industry. And also now, um, even more so, probably, depending on what happens in the, the, the restructuring of the Conservative Party after the Brexit, it may become even more likely. There's a strong American puritanical influence funding uh, groups in Britain, particularly the so-called Centre for Social Justice that Ian Duncan Smith runs. This Centre for Social Justice has funding from sites uh, somewhat arm's length from American charities which drive derive their income from from the defense and military industry. And their ambition is to make sure that the world becomes or stays as much American as it can. And, and that is true. That isn't democracy at all. And, that, that, and we really need to make sure we don't fall prey to the simple semantics. And it's great, isn't it? Why would you not have the center for social justice? But what they mean by social justice is you've got to do what they say. And that really is not to do anything other than drink alcohol. Where does it really, really come from? Well, it comes from uh, an interesting period in our life, which I've already alluded to, the 1960s, and uh, it, the, the Vietnam War. Because the reason LSE is illegal is because it was changing the way people viewed the war. Now, again, I'm looking around here, a lot of you didn't, weren't even born, you're, some of you weren't even thought of before the Vietnam War. But anyway, the Vietnam War was a war, the last war the Americans fought to try to maintain the world order through their military might. And they fought it in Vietnam, which is why it's called the Vietnam War, and uh, that's the place over in Southeast Asia, and, um, which most Americans didn't know about. They didn't even know what it was. But they were young American men, your sort of age, were being told to go and fight. And initially there was uh, voluntary service, and then 
so many were getting killed that people wouldn't volunteer anymore. So then the American government decided it had to have conscription. So basically, if you are over 18 and you're... And I remember this vividly. I remember on the television watching this. If you were born on an odd day of the week, an odd day, if your birthday was an odd day of the month, you'd get conscripted and you could go to a foreign country that you'd never heard of really, or at least you didn't know where it was, and you'd live in a very... In a jungle, being eaten by mosquitoes and cockroaches, being shot at by an enemy that you didn't ever see, fighting for a cause you didn't understand. Uh, and it's not surprising that many young Americans said, I don't want to do this. And then they went to Haight Ashbury, they went to San Francisco, they got to Asia, they listened to the Grateful Dead, and they thought, this is a better world. We, I don't, actually don't want to be a soldier, I don't want to be in the military, I don't want to kill people for, for no reason at all, other than you know, they have a different belief system than me. And LSD was the first drug to be banned simply because it changed people's perception. Because even then, the Americans could not ban a drug just because they didn't like it. So they had to create hysteria about it. And they did. The American press was remarkable, even better than the sun, in creating hysteria. They created ridiculous levels of hysteria about LSD. It's not even clear to me whether anyone ever died of LSD. We know, obviously, that even back in the 60s, tens of thousands of people were dying from alcohol and tobacco every year. But the American government decided to, in communion with the newspapers, create hysterical stories. A woman gives birth to a frog. LSD fed ape groups, TV actors, you know, sort of utterly absurd kinds of headlines like that. And you might say this is laughable. It's laughable that anyone could change the law based on such ridiculous and absurd uh, falsehoods. But that's what they did then, and that's what we have just done now. Some of you know, yes? May the 27th, this country your country, the country that you voted the, for, you voted into power, the Conservative Party. This country has done something that no other country in the world has ever done. It has banned any drug that changes your mind. Whether that drug exists today or whether it will ever be made in the future, irregardless of whether it's harmful or not, and we do that. The Psychoactive Substances Act became law on the 27th of May, and essentially everything's illegal. I think even holding your breath for more than 30 seconds to get high is illegal. And, and, and it's hard to talk about this without kind of, kind of gagging, really. How can, a, how can a country like ours, which has got a tradition of liberty and scientific endeavor, how can it do something as utterly, utterly controlling as that? And the answer is very simple. The answer is because the sun told them to. The sun created hysteria, has over the last two or three years created hysteria around the use of nitrous oxide. The reason it's done that is because footballers use nitrous oxide. Footballers use nitrous oxide because it's the only drug they can be tested for. So they're not as dumb as you think sometimes, are they? <laughs> but the sun didn't get hysterical when Prince Harry used nitrous oxide. But it got very hysterical 
when Raheem Sterling used nitrous And the Sun has had a campaign over the last few years to get nitrous oxide banned based on the fact that footballers use it. But banning nitrous oxide was difficult. Uh, there also, of course, there have been other legal highs, such as methadone and um, other stimulants, and also synthetic cannabinoids that have come along. And those have all been worked together as a, in the term legal highs, and the campaign to get rid of them has led to a law which bans everything. Other than alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. And that's outrageous. It's truly outrageous. And when I speak to some friends around the world, they say, you must be joking. You can't ban things that don't exist, but you can, and you have. And, and the, the reality is anything that affects your brain now, whether it's being discovered and used for treating illness or treating or recreational uses, de facto illegal. Um, because that's what the government said. And that's going to have a massively deleterious effect on research. Because it's been really difficult to do research with psychedelics now. They're illegal. Our psilocybin study, so we managed in the end to treat 20 patients with psilocybin. It took us uh, two and a half years to go through all the regulations to get psilocybin to uh, give to our patients. Each dose of psilocybin ended up costing 1,500 pounds. Now, there is no drug in the world that's that good. <laughs> Why is that? Because when I work with psilocybin, I am treated as a criminal. They assume that, and as are all my colleagues, it's not just me, no, I mean it's, we have to have special police checks. Only four hospitals in Britain are allowed to hold cannabis because it's deemed as too dangerous. I'm a doctor, I can prescribe heroin, which is massively more dangerous. You know, 1,300 deaths a year from heroin, no deaths from cannabis. But I can prescribe cannabis because I'm a doctor, not heroin because I'm a doctor, but I can't do anything with cannabis because it's controlled as a Schedule One drug like MDMA, like cytosine. This is utterly, utterly stupid. It's a waste of your money because you funded my research, frankly, or at least those of you who pay taxes. <laughs> and it's, it holds the field back. We are the first people in 50 years to have done a study with LSD in this country. We did it. Thank you. Thank you. We did it. He was like, why did you do it? And the answer is because it had to be done. You know, you can't have a drug which changed the world. You can't have the only drug to be banned because it changed the way people think. And not understand what it does in the brain. And of course, the study's been remarkable. We, we've understood the nature of hallucinations now. We've understood the nature of the change in the ego, the sense of becoming part of the universe that these drugs produce. And you'll hear about for the next speaker. We can now, we can now show you a brain map that makes sense of this. And I think that's critical, because we, we cannot win the argument about drugs by relying on common sense. We've, you've seen that. We can't even now win the moral argument. This government has told us that taking drugs is immoral unless you take alcohol. Any other psychoactive drug other than alcohol that changes the way you feel is illegal. So that's, they've made that moral decision. It's not, it's, they told us it's not based on harm anymore. It's based on morality. So we can't win the moral argument. The only way we can win the argument 
is in science. We have to show them, scientists like me have to show them, that the science is really worthwhile. That the science underpins the potential therapeutic value. And at the very least, these drugs should be made available for medical treatment and research. And whether they go into recreation use or not, who cares? Because the reality is they're not dangerous anyway. Thank you very much. So we've, we've got 15 minutes or so for questions. If you... Yeah, so the question is, if I'm... Yeah, they asked me that question in the Independent yesterday, but I couldn't write it. I mean, I, I had a sign domestic. My mother died yesterday, unfortunately, so, um, so I'm not staying. I'm just come to give this talk, and then I'm going to go home and sort things out. But they asked me to do that. But I will do it, and I'll tell you what I'd do. What I'd say, I'd say the reality is this. That question? The question was, if I was Prime Minister... I'd be better than Boris, anyway. Um, <laughs> what would I do? What I'd do is very straightforward. I would apply science. I'd apply rational approach to drugs. I would use good policy, which we have seen developed elsewhere in the world. We've got good models now. It's not that we're going into the dark by saying, make medical cannabis available. Two-thirds of Americans... That's 220 million people. The richest people in the world have access to medicinal cannabis. But in Britain, we don't. Why don't we have access to medicinal cannabis? Because the drugs minister thinks if we had medicinal cannabis, it would encourage you not to use cannabis. Like some of you clearly aren't taking notes. <laughs> I would say this. I would say based on the knowledge we have of drug harms, drugs which are less harmful to the user than alcohol should be available. They should be available in a regulated fashion. And I say that for two reasons. I say that for the moral reason. Why should you, those of you, what strength is that you're drinking? What's that magnus? Four and a half. Yeah, you see, it's like a half a joint, you know, and you've got to be very careful. <laughs> if drink alcohol kills 26,000 people a year in Britain, premature, a lot of them young people, so anything that's less harmful to the user than alcohol, I think we have a moral right to make available. And we should definitely ban wine boxes. <laughs> See, that's yes. We should limit the sale of alcohol to small um, uh, units. Um, so there's a moral argument, but there's also the health argument. that I believe that if people have access to safe to drugs, such as cannabis and such as MDMA or other stimulants in a nitrous oxide even, in quantities of harm them, we would actually have less harm. The alcohol is a hugely expensive drug. It costs six billion or more a year just to police drunkenness. So not here, obviously, but on the on the streets of our cities. So I think we should have a regulated market. We should control alcohol. I think alcohol is too cheap. It's, what you're drinking is you're drinking. You're paying a third of the price I paid when I was a student for alcohol, and that's why consumption's gone up. Last year in Britain, there was a six percent increase in mortality in women from alcohol. 6% in one year in mortality. Alcohol is the leading cause of death in men under 50 in this country, and it would be the leading cause of death in women 
under 50 by the end of this decade. So we have to control alcohol, and the way to control alcohol is to give people access to safer drugs, not to stop access to other drugs. So that's what I do. But drugs are more harmful to the user than alcohol. So drugs like heroin, crack, cocaine, I would still keep it legal, hoping that sensible people like you would then switch to some of the MDMA or nitrous oxide. Now, any other questions? Yes. So the question is, what can you do to help ordinary people? You're not ordinary people. You're very special people. You know, you, can, you, you know, I mean, you've, you know, you've taken a whole hour out of your precious gasoline time to come and listen to me. I'm, I felt very, I'm very touched by that. And, and I, I think it's sort of, I would like to. How many of you follow me on Twitter? How many of you know what Twitter is? <laughs> you could write it in the mud, I think, you know, and then it... Uh, no, so I'd like you to all follow me on Twitter, Prof David Nutt. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Yeah. Because that way I can tell you when, what issues are happening, when things are going on. And I think I'd also like you to, to follow drug science, drug science. When I was sat by the government from the ACND, I, I, I realized that, that something had to be done. Because once, once I'd gone, there was no voice. Uh, I, I was pretty certain that the people that followed me on the ACND would not dare step out of line, because they'd seen what happened to me, and they would they would have been carried by it. So I thought, we've got to do something different. So I decided what to do was, well, I set up a charity called Drug Science. So you can follow Drug Science, it's online, and if you want, you know, if you like things like what we do, you can donate. It, it's a charity, it gets by on things like my lecture fees and, and donations. Follow us, because we, we are beginning to develop a, a kind of campaign, which which at the very least will educate people. The great thing about drug science is it's now where a journalist goes. Journalists want to know about drugs, they come to drug science. And I'm inundated, as I say, day out, you know, three or four times a day, I get a journalistic inquiry to do something. Um, and the more power of drug science, the more we can, we can actually be the, the voice. And if we're the voice, it's much harder for newspapers like The Sun or The Mail to lie about drugs. Because if other journalists ring us up and they say, well, what's the truth? We tell them the truth. So if we've got to stop the, this, the disinformation that's been so powerful in terms of driving drug policy. So that's the first thing you do. The second thing you can do is there's a book called Drugs Without the Hot Air. Have you heard any of you heard of that? You've got it. Good. Drugs Without the Hot Air. Good. So next time, if I'm here next year and you're here next year, could you all bring your copies so I can sign them, please? Right? That's a very important book, because that book supports my charity. All the proceeds go to my charity. I wrote it, by the way, in case you're wondering who the author was. But, um, and that's the book that you, most of you, should give to your parents. Some of you, perhaps not. Some give to your children. But, but most of you give to your parents, right? Give them to your parents and say, Mom, Dad, this is your Christmas present. This book will change the way you think about drugs. And by the way, if there's anything you don't understand, speak to me and I'll explain it to you. So you want to begin a dialogue with your parents as well as, as well as educating them. And use that book as a template for having this dialogue, because we need to have a dialogue. There is, you know, there is so much misinformation from supposed reputable sources like newspapers that we have to challenge it. And, and I can't, you know, I'll do my best, but if all of you are challenging it, if all, every time someone lies about drugs, you say, hang on, but read the book. On the drug side, drug side, okay? Yes. Yeah, what do you say to young children? Well, this is really, there's a chapter in it. 
Yeah, no, no, no. There's a chapter in it. And I start with four. I think children need to learn. Of, one of the saddest things we have in this country, the last government rem removed any directive, they removed any, re any requirement to teach about drugs at school. That's disgusting. You know, the only, the only act materials that teachers, teachers don't have to teach about, schools don't have to teach about drugs at all. If they want to teach about drugs, the only free material they can get is provided by the Scientologists. And they, they give a lot out. It's outrageous. There is no government-sponsored support for it. That's one of the things drug science wants to do. If I get funding, we would set up a schools program. But you've got to start before. Look, as soon as children see their parents usually being drunk or stoned, they need to know what's going on. A lot of kids at four or five will be going to school hungry because their mother's drunk and hasn't woken up or they'll be beaten up by their father. We need, kids need to know about drugs from a very early because it impinges on so many people's lives. So the book is in there. What do you say to a five-year-old? Well, you tell them that people get intoxicated and, and they could do bad things. And if, they, if, they're, you know, if they're getting beaten up by a drunk father, then they should talk to the, to the school. You know, at, at every age, you should be approaching the truth. I mean, the, um, people will say, people say, well, education, drugs education doesn't work. Yeah. What they mean is drugs education doesn't stop people taking drugs. Well, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is stop people being harmed by drugs. And this is one of the worst things. That you, for the last 10 years, we've had both this current government, the last government, and the last Labour government. Their drugs policy, which we oppose continuously, had the sole measure, the sole measure of success was how many people use drugs. And I would say to them, and this is why I got sacked, well, look, hang on, does that include alcohol? No. Why not? Because it's not a drug. Why do you want to stop people using drugs? Because they're harmful. But if they're less harmful than alcohol, won't we reduce net, net harm? We're not going to talk about that, or we're going to lie about it. So, so the, the premise is that we, if we stop people using drugs, there will be less harms. So I say to them now, well, okay, so this, you think people, there's less use of drugs. Okay, well, why, how come? Deaths from cocaine reached a whole time, an all-time high last year. Deaths from heroin are going up. How come that's happening? If you're, and there is no, there's no relationship between use and harm. Because what we're doing is we're, we're actually increasing the harms of drugs in the, in the, the people we're using by this policy you adapted and having it all in the black market. So I mean, so I suppose the bottom line is you've got to have a more rational government. Now there is hope. Don't don't give up. The Lib Dems, some of you may know, some of you may know, they did exist. There's eight of them left. And there's one other, there's a green lady called Lucas from Brighton. Six, six of the Lib Dems and, and Caroline Lucas have endorsed a policy document legalizing cannabis that I helped put together, which was endorsed by the Lib Dem Spring Assembly and uh, there will be debate in Parliament about it. So we've got seven MPs that are openly supporting legal cannabis. Make damn sure those of you who are in their constituencies, you vote for them, please. One more? Yeah. So, yeah, so the question is, how can we use social media to try to promote and develop the, 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 the uh, 
division of drug science. I should say, it's important, drug science is a charity, it's not just me. I've got a whole group of real experts. Almost all the experts on drugs in Britain are on drug science. That's, unfortunately, that's one of the reasons the government's laws on drugs are so bad, because even when, you know, they don't even make the laws correct, they're not even chemically correct. The latest law on cannabis, you might be interested in, on synthetic cannabinoids, the latest uh, proposed law on synthetic cannabinoids uh, currently captures something like 35 licensed medicines under this act. The government doesn't even know its own laws. He doesn't even understand what it's doing. So, because most of the experts work for drug science. So, when we're communicating, we're, so I tweet, drug science has a website, we do Facebook. At some point, we will have a campaign. And so, we're going to, what I'm trying to do now, I think the key issue, the big, for us in this country at present, is a technical issue. And it's about how we can get cannabis, medical cannabis available. And, and it, all it takes is for the Home Secretary to write a letter, write a, what's called a statutory instrument, and say that cannabis is no longer a Schedule One drug, which means you have to have a special license, it takes a year and costs £5,000 to hold it, but it's a Schedule Two drug, alongside heroin. So we could store cannabis alongside heroin in our pharmacies and not worry too much, because if people are going to break into that pharmacy, they're not going to take the cannabis, are they? Yeah. If we make cannabis a Schedule II drug, like the Americans are almost certainly going to do this year, that will make it a medicine. And it a stroke. And it, would, it doesn't even need a vote of power. And you can just have a, the Home Secretary saying, yep, there's enough evidence, it's a medicine, let's put it back in the medical category, Schedule II. And immediately, that would happen. So we need a campaign for that. And everyone should, if we start a campaign, you should really sign up for that. Well, you know, at some point, that's going to happen. 100,000 people have signed the campaign, the petition called Ease Our Pain, at least over 100,000. So there will be a debate in Parliament about cannabis and medicine. And then I think we should do the same for psilocybin, because we know that there's good evidence of its value in depression, and MDMA as a medicine for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think if we could all push for just those three drugs to be put in, out of Schedule 1 into Schedule 2, we could really make a huge difference to a lot of people fast. So finally, again, on Twitter, please. I want to see at least another thousand signed up tonight. Last question. Do I think Brexit's going to make any difference? Well, it's, it's going to make a difference in a number of ways. It's certainly a distraction. One thing about Europe, whatever you think about Brexit, the European Directorate of Justice, they developed a policy five years ago based on the harm scale that we developed. And they said all new drugs should be assessed under the harm scale. And if they're very harmful, they should be criminalized. If they're moderately harmful, they should be subject to civil sanctions. And they're not, they're not harmful, they should be legal. And our government, my scale, and the government, our government said, no, we're not interested in doing anything that Europe are doing on drugs. And of course, we've gone on now to make everything illegal, even if it's harmless. So Europe was good for drugs, because Europe is rational. Most European countries, particularly Netherlands, you know, Belgium now, Spain, Portugal, they have much more rational drug policies. So I think Brexit could actually make things worse, because if we end up being controlled by these ultra-Puritan, right-wing American lobby groups, it could be more problematic. But who knows? I mean, so, you know, I'm not optimistic, but, but don't give up, because you never know. Something, you know, there might be a chance for change. Oh, this guy's very hard. Last question. No synthetic alcohol. Well, this is an interesting... 
So it seemed to me over the, a few years ago, 10 years ago now, 11, um, I was writing a government report called the Foresight Report on drugs in the brain. And we were brainstorming for a year on the future of drugs. And I spent most of my professional career actually working in the field of alcohol dependence. And I, for the first 20 years, I was trying to treat people with alcohol dependence. I was trying to stop people being intoxicated, stop people craving, stop people dying of cirrhosis. And then during this brainstorming process, kind of came to me, well, we can never do that. Alcohol is intrinsically toxic. For those of you who drink, there's only a few of you here, I see this is good, but let me just tell you, sir. If alcohol was treated like a food additive, suppose, suppose one day, you know, you, it was, suppose alcohol didn't exist, and suddenly you discovered this wonderful solvent which you could put into trifles to make them taste better. Yes, you said, I'm going to make my fortune selling alcohol trifles. You go to the Food Standards Agency and you say, uh, can I sell this? And they say, do toxicology testing. You do toxicology testing. And you come back and you say, can I sell it? And they say, yes, you can sell alcohol. It is toxic. So the maximum exposure in a year for alcohol, if you treat it like other food additives, is a glass of wine per year. So we, we know that, we've known that for a long time. The, the reason we don't enforce those rules is because it's not a food additive, it's a food, and it's exempt. And that's the problem. We blind ourselves to alcohol. So, 4 million premature deaths a year from alcohol. We could get rid of almost all of those by replacing it. I know science, the science we've done, could give us, it has given us, I've taken it. My wife has taken it. We have parties over, over Christmas. We've had synthetic, we've got alternatives to alcohol. They don't like alcohol, but they don't want your liver and your gut and your brain, etc. And you don't get so much of a hangover. And they're reversible, and it's perfect. And the question is, how do you develop it? And the answer is, in Britain, we can't develop it, because de facto, it is now illegal. So we are thinking about going overseas, because you, know, and you guys will just have to die of your liver cirrhosis, and the rest of the world can live longer. Maybe that's a good point to end. Thank you all very much. listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time and before i forget to say it i've put a link to professor nutt's book drugs without the hot air in the program notes for today's podcast as we just heard him say uh, this would be a great book for you to give to your parents if they are still in the dark about these substances to give you a brief idea of what the book covers uh, here are a few of the chapter titles Is ecstasy more dangerous than horse riding? How can we measure the harms done by drugs? Why do people take drugs? Cannabis, and why did Queen Victoria take it? If alcohol were discovered today, would it be legal? What is addiction? Is there an addictive personality? Can drugs improve performance? Psychedelics, should scientists try LSD? The Future of Drugs, and What Should I Tell My Kids About Drugs? That's uh, not all of the chapter heads, but it's some of the ones that kind of interested me at first glance. 
And after taking a peek inside this book, as Amazon allows, I bought a copy for myself and uh, downloaded it to my Kindle, which is another reason this podcast is a bit late this week. I was uh, just going to take a quick look at it, but (laughs) I had trouble putting it down. Uh, While I think I know uh, quite a bit about this topic already, I've learned that each new book I read on the subject uh, brings with it even more insights that I missed before. And uh, that last chapter, What to Tell Our Children About Drugs, for me, could be titled, What Should I Tell My Grandchildren About Drugs? Because uh, they are now at the ages where uh, they are noticing their grandfather's somewhat unruly ways. And, uh, well, I want to be sure not to mess them up too much. So guidance from someone with Professor Nutt's background uh, seems to me to be important here. If you're still living at home, uh, well, then maybe you should give your parents a copy of this book uh, before the next big family gathering. It could uh, surely be a great source for some interesting conversation around the dinner table. Now, as I was preparing this podcast, I noticed that Professor Nutt also gave an interview to the BBC in which he discussed the work of Aldous Huxley. And so I gave that a listen, uh, which is something I'd like to do for you right now. Uh, However, this is only a very brief part of the interview, but I think that you'll find it worth listening to. With me to introduce their good read are the psychiatrist David Nutt, professor at Imperial College London, chair of the charity Drug Science, and perhaps most famous for being sacked from his role as drug czar by the last Labour government because he challenged their drug policy. David, would you launch things with your choice of a good read? What is it? My choice is Island by Aldous Huxley his last novel, and uh, though not necessarily his best, certainly his, to me, the most meaningful, because it sums up a life of thought. It's a remarkable book from a remarkable man. I mean, Huxley Aldous was undoubtedly one of the greatest intellects in the history of humanity, and uh, he tries to pull it all together in this book. It's a sort of utopia. It's a fantasy about a utopia. Well, actually, no, it's not really a fantasy. It's more a programme. It's more a kind of directive for the future of humanity. Well, at least that's how I read it. And if you get in it, there are discourses on philosophy, on religion, on medicine, on psychotherapy. He, he, he starts suggesting that how CBT might develop. He actually goes into some theories around mindfulness. It really is a philosophy of how humans can live better. Of course, it's on a utopia. It's set on an island. It's set on this mythical island where people have worked out that you can, by using rational approaches to humanity, live a better life and actually be more human and be more fulfilled and understand what you're doing and actually die better as well. So it's it's utopian in that sense, but I think it is a, it's a kind of... It's almost like a, a roadmap for Western society. I mean, there is, there's something in that, isn't there, David? This, as a novel, this yes. really doesn't work that well. I mean, it is, it is an essay with examples, if you like. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely. I mean, yes, the, it's, it's a weak novel, but it's a phenomenal thought piece. And for me, it's been hugely... I mean, yeah, I have built my life around this novel because particularly the concept of using Moshka a drug to help people come to terms with a better life. I mean, that's something that was impressed me as an undergraduate when I read it, and it's something which I have worked towards. And, in fact, only last week we achieved, in a sense, the Huxley dream of using a psychedelic drug, in this case psilocybin, to help people come to terms with very difficult to treat depression. So the book has a lot of meaning for me. It actually is probably why I'm a psychiatrist, because the book 
essentially looks at different aspects of psychology, thinks through different theories, and gives hope that if we do approach the human condition with, with a rational view, which is both humanistic and scientific, we can have a better outcome. And, and that's what I've tried to do. So not you don't think the Tux is being slightly naive in his idea that this drug that they all take freely on the island that gives them you know, good trips and indeed bad trips sometimes, mm-hmm. that, that it's going to be the salvation of people? Because an awful lot of weight is put on that, although there are other theories of how people should live. Well, he... Yeah, naive in in the sense that Western society hasn't adopted it, but but optimistic in the sense that there is still hope. And you know, I mean, personally, I think there's a lot of opportunities for using mind-altering drugs to improve mental states, not only of people who are ill, but people who actually are are seeking to be better. Now, if you haven't already read Island, well, then what are you waiting for? I've read it several times myself, and uh, most likely will read it yet again one more time before I die. And as many reviewers have pointed out, it may not be Huxley's best novel, but as a summary of his life's intellectual work, it uh, is truly revealing. As you know, my wife was Dr. Charlie Grobe's research nurse during the initial phase of his end-of-life psilocybin study, and uh, Charlie was a close friend of Laura Huxley to whom he introduced me. And on more than one occasion, I heard Laura tell people that of all the books that Aldous wrote, he always considered Island to be his very best work. She never said his best novel, but his best work. And I think that Professor Nutt has correctly picked up on that fact. You really owe it to yourself to read Island. Uh, To my mind, it's even more significant than The Doors of Perception, which uh, was a key book in the intellectual lives of people like Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary. However, uh, getting back to Professor Nutt's latest book, I want to close today by reading a few highlights from its final chapter, What Should I Tell My Kids About Drugs? Unlike a novel, uh, I don't think that this will be a spoiler that gives away the ending. (laughs) But in the event that you are a parent who is worrying about educating your child about drug safety, I hope that this will encourage you to buy the book and talk about it with your family. So uh, here now are a few bits of good advice that I hope you'll follow. To begin with, Professor Nutt says, One important harm reduction measure is to delay experimentation. And I have to say that that's something I totally agree with. In my own case, uh, before I was even in my teens, I was sneaking alcohol out of my dad's liquor cabinet and smoking cigarettes with my school chums. But it wasn't until I was over 40 years old that I tried my first illegal drug, ecstasy. And it was actually legal at the time I first tried it. Now, after taking MDMA, or ecstasy as it was called at the time, it was almost another year before I even tried cannabis. I was definitely a late bloomer. So my gateway drugs were alcohol and tobacco. And today I'm very glad that I hadn't begun using other substances sooner. But that's a choice each of us has to make on our own. However, if you or your friends do begin experimenting earlier, Dr. Nutt has this to say as well, and I quote, The first time you take any drug, it will have a bigger effect on you as you haven't developed any tolerance, 
end quote. Which he goes on to point out as being even more problematic for young people. And as an aside here, I found that after trying a wide variety of substances that even for an experienced user, the first time that any psychoactive substance is used, well, that effect will usually be much more sublime the first time that you use it. I call it the virgin rush, and trust me, if you've not yet tried MDMA, be sure to make that first time special, preferably in a small setting with only one or two friends. But definitely don't waste your virgin rush of MDMA at a club or somewhere with live music. Do it right, and uh, you'll be very glad that you waited for the right moment. Now, uh, here are the 11 starting points that Professor Nutt recommends for discussing drugs with young people. 1. Alcohol and tobacco are drugs. 2. All drugs can potentially cause harm as well as pleasure. 3. Start telling your kids about drugs from an early age and be prepared to discuss your drinking and smoking with them. 4. Never inject. 5. Don't use solvents. They kill about one person each week and usually kill instantly. 6. Don't take drink and drugs at the same time. And I've learned that this is particularly true with substances like MDMA. Because besides being more dangerous, uh, well, for me, alcohol kills the effects of the MDMA and, well, it ruins the trip. Number seven, a criminal record could ruin your career. And uh, actually, that's why it took me so long before I first began my own experimentation. As you know, I was a lawyer living and practicing in Texas. And, uh, well, at the time, people were going to jail for 30 years for a single joint. And, uh, well, that kept me on the sidelines more than anything else at the time. Number eight, find good sources of advice. Number nine, if you do take drugs, including alcohol and tobacco, be clear why you're doing it. Ten, if you do get into trouble with drugs, get help quickly. And eleven, if you do use drugs, make sure they don't interfere with your schoolwork. School might seem like a waste of time now, but you can seriously damage your choices for the future if you fall behind in your work and waste your opportunities. Well, I guess that this should probably be about enough preaching by me to last you for the rest of this year. But every once in a while, my dad genes come out. And uh, while I know that there are a lot of old people like myself here in the salon, for the most part, our fellow saloners are under 35 which means that you either are still in school yourself or you have a young family that will be needing your guidance sooner than you might expect. In his book, Professor Nutt recommends talking with your children about drugs even before they become teenagers, and I completely agree with him. Get that conversation going at the dinner table tonight. Make it easy for your children to talk with you about these amazing, powerful, and fascinating substances. It may be the most important thing that you ever teach your children. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>